This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Welcome to episode two in our series on system change. Last week, we accepted the challenge of Blockade Australia. They physically stopped the traffic into and out of four major ports in Australia. It was daring and dramatic, but hardly reported by the media. Today, Rob White and his co-author, John van der Velden, explore what system change might mean. If you agree that capitalism is driving overproduction and overconsumption, and extinction, then you will be fascinated by their ideas. This will be followed by Simon Walker's theme on rewilding. The soil is a complex ecosystem, like our bodies, and Simon talks to Dr Heidi Jane Hawkins from Conservation International and also from University of Cape Town. She talks about rewilding beneath the ground. She says that mycorrhizal fungi can draw down one third of our carbon emissions. So hang in for that about halfway through the show. Oh, sorry, a little bit out of breath. For those just joining, I'm at the top of a monopole, which is tensioned down with three ropes. Right, let's turn that around. Three ropes. Across four lanes of traffic, effectively allowing one person to block the flow of goods from inside of the port. As you can see, there's a truck line that is driving down there, stretching along there. We've got the cops uh, sussing out, waiting to figure out what they're going to do. Um, I'm doing this because. This port is just a small snapshot of the system that is driving climate catastrophe, the destruction of this land, the effects of climate change we are already seeing. We've seen it in the floods that ravaged through here, that ravaged twice through Lismore. We've seen it in the bushfires that shocked the southeast Queensland region. We've seen the heat waves overseas, a heat wave killed just a hundred people just this morning. We see it in the erosion of the Pacific Islands, the erosion of other land masses. And it's Australia as a system that enables corporations and industries to continue on because that is how it sustains itself. The Australian system cannot continue without the exploitation of the land and the people. I'm Daniel Ridge. I'm Helen Beddo, and we are publishers at Emerald Publishing. Multiple studies published in peer-reviewed scientific journals show that 97% or more of climate scientists agree that human-caused climate change is happening now. 
In their new book, The Extinction Curve, Growth and Globalization in the Climate Endgame, authors John van der Velden and Rob White argue that we are now at a crossroads if we are to slow or reverse global warming. They argue that the 50-year attempt by the mainstream environmental movement to create a greener capitalism has failed and it's time for more drastic measures. Their book charts a path for a democratic social, economic, and sustainable ecological transformation in the interests of the global majority and demonstrates how this can be achieved. In this episode, we will be speaking with John and Rob about their book, the arguments they put forth, and look at the solutions they provide. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Daniel. Good to be here. Yep. Right. You know, I have a lot of questions about your book. It's really fascinating. But I'm, I'm first of all, I'm interested in what got you involved in this and what, what um, really prompted you to write this book. Well, Rob and I go back quite a long way, some over 40 years. We have occasionally worked together on, say, more academic kind of articles. But both of us have been quite concerned about the alarming increase in both greenhouse gas emissions and the ecological catastrophe in general. And that has merged much more directly now than it did, say, 40, 50 years ago when I started becoming an activist. So Rob, through academia, has literally come to the same perplexing question as, you know, where are we at? It's not going well. What do we do now? John and I both have basically an internationalist kind of view, and we, we tend to look at the world in global terms. And that's partly a reflection of our own biography. John was born in the Netherlands, and I was born in Germany. We both grew up in Canada, and we've spent most of our lives in Australia. So when we look at the world, we do tend to look at things from a global perspective, not from any particular country or national perspective as such. So that was reflected in my academic work, which was in an area called green criminology that deals with issues of environmental harm. But increasingly, environmental harm can only be understood in global terms. So we've referred to concepts such as ecocide. Ecocide used to refer to environmental harm in a territory or a localized area but now with climate change, we're seeing ecocide on a global level. And so coming from my criminological background, looking through an internationalist type of lens, it just made sense that John and I would join together to write an activist academic synthesis and try and understand and explain what's happening in the world today. Could you tell me about the title, The Extinction Curve? So obviously the extinction curve itself primarily refers to the correlation between the rise in greenhouse gases and the rise in temperature uh, globally, uh, as well as regionally. But uh, it also refers to a wider trajectory that the climate change that's reflected in that correlation is also part of a wider uh, ecological catastrophe that's been unfolding for many, many decades, and that's also impacting beyond just the level of climate. Is the extinction curve a model that you guys developed? No. The extinction curve is basically a metaphor, but in a nutshell, it says, as the planet heats up, we will die. And as the heat increases, so too will the number of deaths of all species, including humans. So it's basically similar to the pandemic curve the idea is that as the rates go up, then you can expect more deaths. The extinction part of it means that basically just last year alone, it was predicted there are one million species currently threatened with extinction. And we, unfortunately, due to climate change and global heating, are one of the species that now is starting to be directly threatened by the same kind of process. Well, what does the science tell us about global warming? Is it going in fits and starts? Is it a steady rise? Actually, the climate scientist, Michael Mann, has a, a very neat analogy or metaphor for what's happened. He calls it the hockey stick. And basically what we saw for thousands of years is the hockey stick lying on its side. Then in the last 100 to 400 years, we've seen the blade of the hockey stick going straight up. And that's what the rate of change has been. And, and the key issue with global warming has not been that it's occurring. The key issue is is how quickly, and the hockey stick analogy gives us a picture, as it were, of something that's lying down and all of a sudden the blade spikes straight up. And I think that it's the rate that we have to be concerned with. And that's the thing that really demands that we have urgent action today. This is something that we must act on immediately. That's been highlighted in the current COVID crisis, how much of an impact our everyday economic organization and activity does impact on the environment 
by virtue of the fact you can already see the effects in terms of pollution drop now that we've you know ground to a, not a halt but at least 50 percent drop in economic activity uh globally over the last eight months and probably for another year and this partly gets to the nub of why we in the book are critical of particular usages of the term anthropocene in a lot of at least social science writing anthropocene refers to the idea that somehow the climate crisis is solely human caused and we say well hang on it's it's not human caused as such it's directly related to certain types or modes of production humans have lived on the planet for thousands and thousands of years in australia we have indigenous communities that have been continuous for 60,000 years to say that they've ruined the environment is a nonsense so there's specific modes of production what we would call global capitalism which is the direct cause of what's happening. So it's not Anthropocene in the sense of human caused as a generic term, it's directly caused by the capitalist system of production. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidized longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. That's really fascinating. That's what I really took away from your book. You talk about the capitalist industrial revolution beginning in 1750 as sort of the beginning of this extinction curve, right? I'm curious about how the last 100 years have differed from the first 100 years of that revolution. So basically around the globe for centuries, people have produced and consumed in a whole variety of different ways, including subsistence living. There was different kinds of of feudal arrangements. There was communal living, particularly amongst indigenous peoples and so on. Capitalism has come to dominate on a global scale. And that, that's the vital, crucial difference. It began, in essence, with the age of imperialism at the turn of the 18th century. And what we've seen since has been the consolidation and further penetration and expansion of capitalism into every sphere of life. And they've commodified everything. We buy drinking water. We can actually buy canisters of fresh air. They've managed to commodify everything. And that's part of what we're trying to describe in the book. All economic activity is either producing for a capitalist market or has to react to the conditions of the dominant capitalist market for goods and services. And so the growth in emissions that has been picked up by science since 1950 called the Great Acceleration basically does reflect that actual globalization of capitalism that wasn't there in the initial period. Well, so what is it about capitalism that is so harmful to the environment? Well, it's really what the core economic driver of capitalism is. And it's production for profit rather than for social needs. Obviously, we need at least a goodly portion of the commodities that are produced by a capitalist mode of production. But the motivation for producing is profit. It's not to meet that social need. Well, let's take an example. During the COVID crisis, if you happen to live in a country where the healthcare system is basically private and privatized, then healthcare is a commodity. That is, it's something you buy. If you ain't got the money, you ain't got no healthcare. And fortunately, in places like Australia, we have a national healthcare system, which means regardless of income and background and employment, you have access to healthcare. Now, during the pandemic, It's meant that anybody in Australia can go to a hospital or access a doctor. In societies where healthcare is only commodified and only sold for profit, then it excludes a whole bunch of people who simply can't afford to pay for basic healthcare needs. Is there something built into the capitalist system that is producing more carbon? Capitalism has an imperative, and that imperative is growth. So regardless of whether we rely upon fossil fuels or some other energy source, capitalism requires growth, that is the expansion of commodities and commodity production. So there are no limits, theoretically, to capitalist growth because capitalism itself depends upon that growth. Historically, what we've seen is that that growth is, in terms of private profit, has depended upon the exploitation of natural resources, that is nature, and the exploitation of humans. 
through the exploitation of their labor. And so it's the exploitation of nature and humans, which is central to the making of profit. The profit itself hinges upon continuous and expanding growth. For profit. It's not the expansion of satisfying social needs. It's the expansion of delivering profit for the investment in the production itself. So capitalist growth is distinct from, say, growth in meeting social need. A tragedy is about to unfold on the coastline of Western Australia. In critical whale habitat, fossil fuel company Woodside is planning a mega risky deep sea gas drilling project, the most climate polluting ever proposed in Australia. We need to make a call. Choose whales, not Woodside. Whales are incredible creatures that have graced our shores for millions of years. Vital to the ocean ecosystem, they fertilise plant plankton, boosting fish supplies. They actually reverse climate change, removing millions of tonnes of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Impressive. An irreplaceable hero sustaining the entire living balance of the ocean. Woodside, what's up with their dirty Scarborough gas drilling project? It will decimate whale habitat and poison precious marine parks, dangerous to extract. Think explosions, mass dredging, leaks, noisy drilling, fires, spills. Eek, it will release vast amounts of dirty, toxic gas and accelerate climate change. Destroys the climate, poisons oceans and hurts whales. Can Woodside walk away? Yes. Renewable energy is already blowing gas and coal power out of the water. We just don't need it. Say no to Scarborough Gas. Act now. Choose Wales, not Woodside. Well, we know that carbon emissions are the biggest driver of climate change, and that has been out there. That information has been out there for decades, but there has been very little that we've really done to impact this in a huge way. You know, we, we make reductions in gas emissions from cars and they're little by little, but we haven't taken any great big leaps in terms of stopping carbon emissions. Why do you think that's happening? Well, actually, it's in recent United Nations and other reports, the scientists are the ones who are saying, hey, what's going on here? Because the, the solution to global warming is very clear, stop carbon emissions. But what's happened is that, in fact, for example, subsidies for coal production and fossil fuel production by governments have increased in recent years, not decreased. So the governments, in fact, are still supporting the dirty industries. Now, that gives you at least a clue as to why we're not having the profound changes that we need. And that is that there's a close link between the interests of governments and the interests of capital. Basically, we know what to do. We have the answers. The science tells us the nature of the problem. The science also tells us how to address the problem. So the key conundrum in terms of climate politics is how do we transform the political system? That's the key to addressing climate change. Well, is greening capitalism a solution? Well, the motivation of green capitalism is to make a profit. And the key drivers of that are the billionaire entrepreneurs. And if you look at their track record, in the United States, for example, we've had people wanting to move their factories because they didn't want to adhere to lockdown rules relating to the virus or whatever. So they didn't really care about the workers who were working to build the things that they were putting out there. They wanted to make the profit. Uh, now we've got the same billionaires talking about doing industrial production in space, mainly because it's a way for them to make a profit. And they're the ones who benefit the most from catastrophe, actually. It opens up new markets for them. But the key thing is it's them, this small group of people, making the decisions that affect millions and billions of people's lives. And part of our argument is that we can't afford to let the few make decisions for the many because their track record is, is not very good. But also, it also operates within the context of exponential growth. The whole point of capitalism and profit making is that you need to keep selling products. You have to keep making stuff. And it's not necessarily for social need. Now, some of it obviously has use value. So yes, I support the making of solar panels, but the making of solar panels for that use value can very quickly transform into something else as we go to other forms of commodity production, uh, basically to make a profit. So I think there's a several issues intertwined there, but one of the key ones is who's making the decisions, who controls the kinds of decisions that are being made, and what do we get out of it at the end of the day? And this is being reflected very much 
now in the current debates because we are in a sense in a green capitalist transition debate at the moment uh, as a movement and as a global community. So for example, here in Australia, we sell a lot of coal and oil and we also sell a lot of gas. So as part of the green capitalist agenda here by our current government is to develop gas resources as a transition fuel to meet Paris 2050 targets. You have components of capital that want to pursue a nuclear power agenda and and quite a few activists have called for nuclear power as an alternative to fossil fuels to provide baseload power. So all these pockets of vested capital interests, if they succeed and become a, a leading component of developing a low emissions technology for capitalism to continue producing forever and ever and generating profit, they become the vested interests that you have to contest with when you want to move away from some of the technology investments that they might have provided and the political control that flows from their dominance of a market sector, just like with fossil fuels now that has historically developed over the last several hundred years. And to put this again into the wider framework, let's use the example of China. It's one of the most polluting countries in the world, but it's also one of the leading innovators for clean, green technologies. So you can, in fact, be both. And that's part of the framework within which global capitalism itself works and operates. You can actually do both. You can continue the fossil fuel destruction and simultaneously back your new technologies uh, that are less degrading of the environment. What we want is a framework that says, no, we don't want to do both. In fact, we're going to make decisions and be decisive and that we don't want a simultaneous degradation of the environment along with the innovation. Uh, we want to make decisions that meet social needs and that are not tied to particular vested interests, but in fact will serve the public interest. So what does that look like? What does that look like in terms of a government? What does that look like in terms of an economy? In a nutshell, what we're arguing for and through the book is that we need to democratize social production and extend it. And to do that, we need to collectivize or socialize, or in the case of the argument of the book, to democratically nationalize the central means of the economy owned by the democratic majority. Can you tell me what that means, this democratic nationalization? Yeah, to to give an example of democratic nationalization, let's contrast it with other types of state intervention. And here we can look at the global financial crisis. There's two key examples that I want to point to. One was in the United States, where the government stepped in to bail out the key financial sectors and all the big business buddies of those in the government, in the federal government in the United States. That, for us, is not the way to go, because basically you're you're just bolstering and supporting the very system that led to the collapse of the economy in the first place. The second example was in the United Kingdom, where a Scottish bank was collapsing. The UK government stepped in to bail out and, in a sense, nationalized the bank. Then, after the bank had been bailed out and got back on its feet, it handed the bank back to the private owners. And we say, well, that's crazy because what you've used our money, the people's money, our taxes, to bail out big business, when in fact what we want is a say in what's happening with those businesses. So when we say nationalization, we mean things like banking. We mean things like the health system. We mean things like the food production system. Let's feed people. Let's house people. Let's make sure that they've got good health care. And let's make sure that there's the financial control is not in the hands of the billionaires who have made zillions off the current coronavirus crisis and put very little back into meeting social need. Are there any governments that you look to that you think are doing a good job? Many people today around the world, including the Pope, are critical of capitalism as a system for distorting and perverting the meeting of social needs. The problem is that critique is easy, but transformation is difficult. What we do in this book is try and provide a framework where we actually point in the direction of the transformations that we need. Transformations that are post-capitalist that we would argue should be eco-socialist, and by socialist we mean democratic. Fundamentally, we're talking about democracy and democratization of the means of production. We're talking about the meeting of social need, and we're talking about the public interest 
not the interest of the select billionaires who currently run the global economy. That, in essence, is our argument. And basically, the means to at least the first step to achieve that end is to take the control out of their hands. So we call for the democratic nationalization of the key sectors of the economy. And as we've mentioned, that includes health, finance, the energy sector, and so on. 3CR Community Radio is an important function, just like anything to do with community. I think community radio is essential. And that was the pre-election episode that helped form my views on how I should vote on May 21. Vivian Langford talked with several people and it gave me a great idea how I should vote. So at this point, let me endorse Community Radio. I think it's a wonderful asset and a benefit to the community. Well, as an average citizen, what, what do you think average citizens should be doing? Average citizens should be demanding governments that have a trajectory for public ownership and public control and public accountability, and more importantly, public engagement, or to call a greater democratization of the collective productive enterprise that we are all ingrained in. Well, a lot of governments are proposing things like the Paris Climate Deal and the Green New Deal, particularly the Green New Deal. What are your thoughts about that initiative? Well, the Green New Deal is not about transforming capitalism, but trying to go back to a more regulatory capitalism that existed prior to the Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal revolution, where small government and commercialization of public sector utilities and services occurred. There's a lot of good in the Green New Deal insofar as it's tied to a wider uh, demand for public sector services, such as in education and healthcare. It was fashioned in your country, Daniel, and it resonates less in other countries that already have more public sector health services still and more public sector education. But fundamentally, the Green New Deal is a tax and regulate social democratic structure, which is to coexist with the capitalist system of private ownership and of production. We don't think it goes far enough. Uh, I think it's also, it doesn't reflect either the the structural conundrum that's confronting global capitalism at the moment. What we're seeing today are the limits to growth ecologically, and that is manifest in climate change and global warming. But also what we're seeing today are the limits to growth in terms of capitalism, because capitalism requires consumers as well as the exploitation of labor. And what we're seeing is the demise of consumption across many different spheres, in part exacerbated by the coronavirus crisis, but also what we're seeing is the transformation of labor itself, so that people aren't getting the income. As we put more robotics into production, as we have artificial intelligence guiding production processes, we're finding that fewer workers are actually needed. Those who are needed tend to be casualized and paid less and so on. So the exploitation of labor ultimately rebounds back to capitalism in the form of underconsumption. So we're seeing the limits of growth within capitalism, its looming crisis, as well as the limits to growth ecologically. So what do the ultra-right wing movements going on, particularly in the US, how do they affect the ecological movement? What we're seeing today is very similar to what we saw under 30 years of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism was premised upon the ideology of the free market. But the free market was never, ever free. It was always a monopolized market. That is, the largest corporations ruled the roost and profited the most in the period of neoliberal so-called opening up of the world economy. So it led to the concentration of wealth and power in that 30-year period of neoliberalism. What we're seeing with the rise of the ultra-right is a similar thing with the fortress mentality and with this idea that somehow you can distance yourself from what else is happening in the rest of the world. But again, it's a furphy or it's misleading. It will never happen. The people who are most sucked in by the ideology are also those who tend to be most disadvantaged by that ideology when it's put into practice. And basically, it's a false promise. But at the end of the day, the only jobs that will be created from an ultra-right perspective ultimately will not be traditional factory jobs and agricultural jobs, they'll be the jobs of coercion. Because the only way to hang that 
particular kind of state together is through coercion. And that's through the police and the army. And I think that this is part of the, the great danger that we're facing today is the dramatic shift, not only from authoritarian production systems, but towards authoritarian states. And the fusion of authoritarian production for private profit with the authoritarian state, which is designed integrally to protect those private profits. So you believe that we're 15 years away from a tipping point. So this is a very urgent question. What does this mean once we pass this tipping point? Well, to clarify on the tipping point, it's just a broad reference tipping point. We are seeing the evolution of tipping points geologically already in terms of the increased uh, ice melts and so on. If we don't make those very dramatic moves now and over the next 15 years to wind back, then we will effectively be at a, a point of, if not no return, we will be at a point where human intervention will have very minimal effect. And if we try to have a maximum effect, like through geoengineering, the risk consequences of that rise exponentially, where we need to alter our own biosphere to try to maintain the conditions of existence for an ever rapidly shrinking section of the world population. If you project in terms of science fantasy, for example, if you could put a bubble around your house or a bubble around your country, it's not a bubble around the world. And the people who are outside that bubble are going to suffer all the ravages of the geological feedback loops of drought, firestorm, floods, etc. They're not going to be sheltered like we are in the advanced economies. And progressively, as the crisis deepens, less and less of our own populations can be buffered. You can rebuild New Orleans, but no one is going to rebuild Bangladesh. The climate emergency is now. We have a period of 10 to 15 years where the climate emergency will transform into something else and to something else worse. What we're seeing today is the melting of the glaciers. We're seeing the bushfire seasons and the forest fire seasons extending to become almost a permanent feature across the globe. What we're seeing is the continued pollution and the feedback loops are exacerbating the problem exponentially. So this is not something that just happens gradually. It's exponential. So what we're seeing is the hockey stick in action and we're getting whacked. And basically, time's running out. And time's running out for dramatic transformational action. This is not something that we can respond to slowly. This is not something that we, we can respond to with timid measures and piecemeal reform. What we need now is actually profound transformational change. And that, unfortunately, is the only way forward if we're gonna survive the extinction curve. Are you optimistic that this is possible? For me, our analysis provides a framework, a pathway, whereby we could, in fact, do this. And part of the lessons of the COVID crisis in many countries is that the state is central. And if the state is central, and if it becomes our state, and we can have a democratic nationalization of the key sectors of our economies, then yes, there is hope. But if we don't do that, then the hope proceeds very quickly. The gravity of the situation militates against having hope. And I think a lot of the movement that the book is addressed to lives in a state of relative despair over the fact that we are, we are out of time. I'm optimistic that the majority of people will act in their collective interests to overturn the vested interests. As a movement, we need to create the hope and create the agenda. So that was John van der Velden and Rob White, courtesy of Emerald Publishing, talking about their book, The Extinction Curve. If we want to see change, what we can do is to mobilize together to take direct action, to put pressure onto the economic bottlenecks of this continent, of their system and to take power back into our own hands and into the hands of community.
Over 98% of Australia's imports, I mean Australia's trade, sorry, happen through the ports. The Port of Brisbane is the largest seafaring port in Queensland. The Newcastle Port is Australia's largest coal port. It's the largest coal port in the Southern Hemisphere, I believe. The Newcastle Port has been blocked multiple times. Uh, in just the last couple of years with very small numbers of people. And the reality is when we work together, small numbers of people can make drastic change and apply significant pressure. Now we're going to hear a song called The God Wit and the Curlew. It's by the Bowbird Collective. And it was a finalist in the Environmental Music Prize this year. Please check out the video that goes with it at 3CR Climate Action Show. It's so ethereal seeing these godwits and curlews flying through the sky in gigantic patterns. You will be touched to the core. So that video will be linked to the show notes. Here we are, the godwit and the curlew. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved.
Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Good afternoon. You're listening to 3CR Radio, and this is the Climate Action Show. You're listening to Simon Walker, and I have a guest on today, all the way from South Africa, to talk to me about her latest study on mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, her name is Dr. Heidi Jane Hawkins, and she is a science director and research fellow at the non-profit conservation organization, Conservation International. She has also been a research associate at the University of Cape Town for 14 years. Her work focuses on nutrient cycling and drivers in above-ground, below-ground communities, and what this means for ecosystem functioning and global change. Her latest study, in collaboration with an international team of scientists, looks at the role of mycorrhizal fungi as a global carbon pool. That is, what part these fungi play in the carbon cycle and whether they are meaningful in how much carbon they store underground. Their findings report that as much as one-third of our annual carbon emissions are absorbed by mycorrhizal fungi. Heidi is here to tell us what this could mean for the future of tackling climate change. Heidi, thank you for being on the show with me today. Oh, thank you very much, Simon, for the invitation. It's a pleasure. No problem. So to start off, uh, would you be able to tell us a bit more about uh, mycorrhizal fungi and its role in global ecosystems? Yes, so mycorrhizal fungi are soil fungi, and it's been known for a long time that they're very important for plant nutrition globally. I mean, there is hardly a plant on the planet, actually, that doesn't have these mycorrhizal fungi. And our study now hints at their importance for um, drawdown of, of carbon. So I can just explain a little bit more about what they are. Uh, the word is a clue because uh, myke comes from the Greek, mykes, which means fungus, and then rhiza, also from the Greek, means root. So literally fungus root um, and most plant roots are in fact a combination of a, a plant root and a fungus. Uh, they are not apart. And about 90% of plants on the planet have this symbiosis. And how it works is that the, the fungus enters into or around the root. The plant supplies the fungus with carbohydrates, which it, it can't get because it's below ground and not photosynthesizing like a plant. And then in exchange, the fungus can spread out around the root, effectively extending the area that's available to the plant root. And also the fine threads of the fungus can enter into pores in the soil and get nutrients and water that, that the, are not accessible to the plant. And so there's an exchange where the, the nutrients and water are sent to the plant and then the plant is giving carbohydrates to the fungus. And so you've got this reciprocal exchange going on. Mm. So they're quite an important part of um, ecosystems around the world then. Um, how important would you say they are in reducing carbon emissions and tackling climate change? Right, so this was what we attempted to do in our study and is really the first step. No one had ever really looked at it from the point of view of saying, well, yes, we know that there is this exchange happening, but no one had really tried to look at it from the point of view of how much carbon is being buried below ground as a result of the fungal biomass and also you know, the dead fungal matter. So we did our first estimate and we, we know from putting a whole lot of studies together that we've got this large number of about 13 gigatons of um, carbon dioxide equivalents being sent to the fungus. But what we don't know is how permanent that is. So I think we make that clear in the study. I think it's also clear that they're a very important part of the carbon cycle and there's war, more work that needs to be done. But I, I think what is clear is that, I mean, soil is our largest terrestrial carbon sink, and these fungi are an important part of it. So 
Meanwhile, what we should do is, in the effort to tackle climate change, is to make sure these fungi can carry on doing what they've been doing for millennia and not disrupt uh, the ecosystem service that they provide in terms of carbon and, and nutrition. So these are amazing results that you found. And are these results based off our current ecosystems, um, ones that haven't been damaged by human practices? So for instance, the uh, arable lands that we have available now, um, about half of it is used for urban development and agriculture. So if we were to rewild those lands, would we see an increase in the carbon sucked up from the atmosphere by the fungi? Potentially. So we know, I'd say that what is clear is if you rewild an area, if you restore uh, a deforested area, or if you restore any natural ecosystem like a grassland or a shrubland, without even knowing anything about the fungi, we know that the plants are very important in the drawdown of CO2. That's without question, because when plants uh, initially colonized land uh, coming out of aquatic systems, we think that they were responsible for the changing of the um, quite high CO2 atmosphere at the time. So about 400 million years ago, CO2 concentrations were about 3000 parts per million. And as those plants spread across the globe, uh, there was a 10 times reduction of that CO2. So it, it's no secret, you know, we need plants to draw down CO2. That's without question. And with these mycorrhizal fungi, they are obviously part of the carbon cycle. So yes, protecting our existing uh, wild spaces, restoring ones that we can, and then uh, also managing agricultural lands because there's ways that we can not rewild them, but at least diversify our um, agricultural lands by having, you know, diversity of crops, more perennial crops, also disturbing the soil less where you have these networks and all sorts of other organisms as well in the soil. Uh, less use of biocides. Uh, obviously, fungicides are not going to be something great for mycorrhiza, but there's all sorts of uh, other organisms that they're all part of the same food web. Yep. And I think what, you know, the question that you ask about rewilding is really interesting because I don't think anyone has really thought about rewilding below ground. You know, there's a big focus on rewilding above ground. So I know, for instance, in the UK and parts of Europe, this is really taking off with not only rewilding plants, but also animals. And there you would have a diversity of, of carbon inputs into the soil. So, you know, not only dung from sheep and cattle, but now from uh, wild grazers and browsers. And then by having a rewilded space with a diversity of habitats like tall and short vegetation, you may bring back certain birds and you bring certain insects. And who knows? how that all ties in with the underground. You know, yeah. so I don't think that that's a question that anybody really knows the answer to. Um, so yes, rewilding the underground um, and knowing more about that diversity and the links with above ground diversity, I think is fascinating idea. Yeah, mm. yeah I spoke yeah. to Dr. Schmitz from the University of Yale a few weeks ago, who released a study recently on how just nine species of animals could help mitigate climate change by creating ecosystems back into carbon pools. So yeah, a lot of above ground work is being done, bringing back animals and hoping that they can start um, feeding off the vegetation and, you know, in dispersing plants and seeds in all different different sorts of environments.
but yeah, it's it's been very overlooked hearing about uh, what can happen below. So, how would organisations or governments be able to bring micro? Uh, Mycorrhizal fungi. <laughs> how would they be able to bring them back into ecosystems? Is it a matter of um, growing the plants first and then the fungi comes second, or is there another way about it? Well, uh, that's a very good question. It depends how degraded an area is. So very often, if you've still got your topsoil, um, if this, if the area hasn't been completely transformed because of some invasive plant, for instance, which changes the nature of the soil, uh, you may still have the spores from mycorrhizal fungi in the area. So if you bring the right plants back, then you know the mycorrhizal fungi will then partner again with those plants. However, sometimes you may need to assist that process. So there are some commercial inoculants or um, yeah, combinations of um, spores and and nutrients that you can add back. Uh, a colleague of mine on the paper and and some of her um, uh, research partners, they just did a paper on the standard and the quality of these inoculants because they're not very well controlled. So sometimes you may have very poor quality, others are better quality, but maybe they're not appropriate for the area. So that is a, an area which can improve. And, and sometimes you know, an inoculation is not even necessary. As I said, you may just need a handful, not a handful, but for each plant, you may need to um, bring some soil in from an adjoining natural area and that will be enough. Mm. Um, but I, I think, yeah, what governments and organizations can do is, well, there are already organizations out there that are bringing awareness to the general public, but also to governments about underground diversity and the potential they have for climate mitigation. And that's an organization called SPUN. Uh, the last author on our paper, Toby Kears, she heads up that organization. Uh, that's the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks. Uh, that is a real, really cool, is a really cool web page. People can go and, and look up and, and see what they can do also as individuals in their own gardens to you know promote diversity and um, mycorrhizal fungi. Brilliant. So it's it's something that people can do themselves as well. It's not just something that they have to you know petition to government about they can get involved. Exactly. Yeah, so I think in your own garden, you can apply the same principles that you might apply uh, if you if you have a farm. So, well, ideally, or if you wanted to uh, protect or restore an area. So have indigenous plants, as many as you can. If you have a little vegetable patch, then introduce diversity into that. And then with your soil, try and disturb it as little as possible to protect these networks. Try and keep biocides like fungicides and pesticides and herbicides out of your garden and, and try and use, try and cover the soil because this keeps, not only keeps water in, but it, um, it keeps the carbon cycle going. So those are things that one can do in one's own patch. And I think that's really very important because as you said, the planet is so urbanized. The more we can do to green those urban spaces, the better. And mm. hopefully, you know, it, little bits all add up. And together with protected areas and rewilded areas, we can begin to have it make a difference. Yep, brilliant. Uh, Dr. Heidi, thank you so much for coming on the show with me today. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for taking an interest in our study. It was great talking to you. You're listening to Simon Walker on the Climate Action Show for 3CR Radio. I've just been speaking with Dr. Heidi Jane Hawkins regarding mycorrhizal fungi and their role in mitigating climate change. 
The organization that Dr. Heidi referred to in the interview is called SPUN. That's S-P-U-N. And you can go onto their website at spun.earth. They have a lot of information about mycorrhizal fungi and more about how you can get involved. If you'd like to check out uh, Dr. Hawkins' study yourselves, you can go on to PubMed online. And the study is called Mycorrhizal Mycelium as a Global Carbon Pool. The entire article is free. Um, so you can go check it out and have a big read for yourselves and see how important mycorrhizal fungi is in developing ecosystems, in biodiversity, and in keeping the planet cool. Um, so go get involved. Thank you. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. So that was episode two in our series on system change, not climate change. Thanks to Rob White from University of Tasmania and John van der Velden, authors of The Extinction Curve. They tackled how to move from protesting against the economic system to gaining the people power to make it serve all our needs and not just profit. Thanks to Emerald Publishing also for their recording. Thank you to Dr. Heidi Jane Hawkins from Conservation International and Simon Walker for his excellent interview. He is exploring dimensions of the climate challenge that I'm not equipped to, to do. <clears throat> We are very keen to share this platform with other voices. So if you can help present items on this show or collaborate with us in some way, please contact 3CR on 03 9419 My name is Vivian Langford. Goodbye and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30pm. News and music from West Papua. And even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn were actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around 3 billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. When it's madness all around And you can see this at a glance We will sing and we will cry We will laugh and we will dance As they shout their marching orders Beneath the helicopter blades, we shall seize the moment for a kiss behind the barricades. They will try to break our spirit, and at times they may succeed, but our love for the world is stronger than their greed. When the building is surrounded and hope begins to fade, in my final hour, a kiss behind the barricades. As the movement grows, there will be hills and bends, 
But at the center of the struggle are your lovers and your friends. And the more we hold each other up, the less we can be swayed. Here's to love and solidarity and a kiss behind the barricade.